I am excited to introduce our guest today, who's a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. I have officially lost her entire entire bio that Chris sent me is no longer in front of me, so I am very sorry. <laughs> she is also, there we go, the head of business development at Highland and the executive director at the Texas Coin Foundation. Natalie Smolensky, welcome to Bitcoin Magazine Live. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And before we dive into what was published today, I want to first just sort of set the stage of what led you down this path, A, to Bitcoin, B, to be working with the BPI, and then C, to CBDCs. That's a great question. I actually have a little bit of an unconventional story of how I came to Bitcoin because I actually came to it on the digital identity side rather than the money side. So I happened to work for a software company that built the very first digital identity wallet, leveraging Bitcoin as a secure anchor of trust. Now, what this means is not that a bunch of identity data was somehow put on the Bitcoin blockchain, which is not possible, but rather that digital credentials could now be held by end users in a self-sovereign manner, meaning they truly own the digital data about them. They choose when and how they self-disclose and verification of data is pushed to the end user, to the edge of the network rather than the center of a network. And so the goal that my company had was to disintermediate many of the centralized identity platform companies that in effect, you know, run the world wide web today. So our vision was a vision of a peer to peer internet. And it turned out that peer to peer money was a really good rail for peer to peer identity. Which one of these big tech companies that unfortunately we still use, like what, which companies would we know that are on this list that you and your company were sort of highlighting and pointing? Well, you know, digital identity is a multi-headed beast. And so different companies own different aspects of digital identity online and also in different contexts. So like institutional or corporate digital identity management is not the same thing necessarily as consumer identity management. But I mean, any social media platform you use, um, Google, app like basically the GAFA companies, these are the biggest players in digital identity today. And a lot of their market incumbency comes from their ability to create platform lock-in by monopolizing the use of your data. Like if you, if you want to move all of your, you know, interaction history from Facebook to Twitter, you can't, you just can't do that. And these platforms have the unilateral ability to delete your account, to delete data about you, to edit it without your consent, to share it without your consent. And so there's a whole like back end, which some scholars have referred to as surveillance capitalism, which is a kind of network of corporations where there's constant data flow and interchange between the private sector and the public sector to increase the, the realm of surveillance and policing. And so this obviously represents a threat to liberty. It represents a threat to any type of democratic governance because your behavior can now be controlled and manipulated at levels that you have no insight into and no, not even possible ways to respond to. And so Bitcoin was kind of the first technology that came across and said, we're going to decentralize the transaction of value, but now we need to go a step further. We need to continue building on that and say, 
hey, let's, let's actually build a, a private internet where privacy means something again. This is so fascinating because I, unfortunately, as Matt O'Dell shamed me both publicly and then privately, I did not discover Bitcoin for its privacy and its security aspects. I was very much on the monetary maximalism side of things. So it's always fascinating to me that like, there are facets and aspects of Bitcoin that I am I haven't even yet begun to explore. I would love just asking this selfishly for myself, like where or how would you suggest interacting with Bitcoin in a way that does become think, different and become far more anonymous and secure as a result? Yeah, today, a lot of the technology is not super user-friendly, much like the history of the early internet. I mean, one of the reasons that the early internet was peer-to-peer -peer is because the earliest user base, the early adopters, tended to be more technical. And so they knew how to use TCP IP, HTTP, these transfer protocols in a peer-to-peer -peer way. As internet adoption increased, we had the, the sort of convenience trap set in where companies realized that making internet access easy for millions and then billions of people who are not technical is, is not just creating a new market for their products, but creating like a new platform for markets as such. And so we had a big centralization movement in, in the late 90s and first decade of the, the 21st century. Now we're starting to see the limitations of that because, you know, convenience always comes at a price, even if it's initially free monetarily, there is some exchange of value that's happening that is immensely profitable for the provider of that convenience. And so what, what Bitcoin, you know, the challenge that Bitcoin faces now is that these Bitcoin based identity protocols are still very much in their infancy and there aren't a lot of software products that are easily available to, to make use of them. I mean, pretty much all of the, the Bitcoin enabled wallet apps are, you know, no different from centralized banking services and the fact that they have to comply with, you know, the full AML KYC provisions, like they have to get registered in every jurisdiction, like it's, it's still very centrally controlled. And so I, I would say, keep your eye on the space and stay tuned, but these products are coming. There are companies building them. Let's let's shift gears here a little bit now. So today it was just published. You have recently written a white paper essentially highlighting, and if I remember the title correctly, it is why the United States should reject CBDCs. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just let's set the stage and much I, I love the way you organized this white paper and I'd love to just sort of like follow that same track of yeah. what are you observing in the world first that has you concerned? I think first and foremost is that we've lost ideas. And by that, I mean, we are both the United States and other countries seem to be kind of at a loss for what politically, what the political organizing principles of a just society should be. The United States has the advantage of you know, having been one of the early Enlightenment era revolutions with very clear founding documents that articulate 
the principles of liberty, equality, and justice in a very clear way. And then a multi-hundred year history of institution building and contestation that has sought to extend those principles to all Americans. The problem that we've run into is the problem of our success is post the Second World War, the U.S. established itself as a global hegemon and empire in a way that began blurring the boundaries between what was good for Americans in the spirit of our revolutionary history and what was good for America, the empire, in terms of just raw power and influence. And so a trade-off decision started being implicitly made both, you know, by the state and often by electorates that perhaps sacrificing privacy, perhaps sacrificing liberty, perhaps sacrificing justice was worth um, the, the near-term advantage of immediate power. Now, you know, empires throughout history have made that trade-off decision. They've all collapsed because they all overextend themselves. They, they get to a point where their resource base can no longer support the expansion of power that has become an end in itself. And that's the inflection point that we've already passed. And so there are a number of global indicators, you know, like the war in Ukraine, but before that, the war in Syria, you know, the NATO bombing of Libya, the, the challenges to, uh, to U.S., uh, sort of the narrative of, of democracy through the invasion of Iraq. I mean, these were, these were all foreign policy disasters that indicated a kind of deeper malaise, lack of imagination at, in the empire, in the center of the political body, where, you know, in, increasingly we, we actually, we've lost a sense of cohesion as a country. There's a sense that you know, we're surrounded by enemies or we're governed by people who don't have our best interests at heart, often for cultural reasons rather than substantive reasons. And so what I'm what I'm suggesting is that America needs to refound itself. We need a founding narrative that draws on a revolutionary tradition and that reimagines what liberty, equality and justice look like for America in the 21st century. And there's a lot of this, like as we touch on just the decisions that have been made both in this country and historically, this doesn't really feel like what a modern developed country and the types of decisions they would be making. This feels more akin to decisions, as you said, out of, out of China. Um, can we just talk about how this intersection is happening where what looks like would be a policy decision that a communist or authoritarian government would really take, you're seeing it in what is at least said to be a thriving global democracy. That's, that's right. No, I mean, what, what we've seen is, you know, and, and the political philosopher Giorgio Agamben has written about this, the, the slow extension of the logic of the airport to every aspect of human life. What is the logic of the airport? It is a logic of total surveillance, which at any moment can flip from a kind of neutral zone of transit 
into a camp. And so Agamben identified the prison camp, you know, even the concentration camp, which is a more extreme form of that, as the, the logic of 20th century state power, as kind of the, the culmination of the logic of the state. Why does he say that? Well, because, you know, a state is nothing other than a set of institutions whose purpose is to govern. The problem with governance is that if you don't have a theory of what ends you are governing toward, then governance becomes a, a end in itself. And so policing becomes an end in itself. Intelligence gathering becomes an end in itself. Surveillance becomes an end in itself. Today, there are 18 federal security or intelligence agencies that collectively their budget most recently was $86 billion. So that's like, you know, just under $5 billion per agency on average. What is, why, why do we need so many intelligence agencies? Is it really that, you know, American citizens and residents are surrounded by criminality, threats, you know, violence at every turn? Or is there perhaps a sort of an embedded logic of perpetuating these institutions of power that then creates the very violence, mistrust, and social chaos they purport to be saving us from? Almost like the state secretly hates you. If only someone had been warning people about this this whole time. <laughs> whether, um, whether they hate you or not, that's... Uh, hate is almost too personal. They don't care about you. Power is power is sovereign in a, a way that is morally neutral. Like the exercise of power is unaccountable. It is final. It is not subject to adjudication or contestation. And so this is why the Enlightenment era political theorists said the only way to have a just society was to pit power against power. The separation of powers is a foundational principle of our, of our society. It wasn't perfect, but it was sort of the, the best model that had been developed to date. Well, now we see, you know, major political party leaders explicitly arguing that we don't need the separation of powers anymore and procedurally working to undermine it. And so what does that mean? It means whether they like you or hate you, they will behave with impunity toward you. That's the end goal. Yeah, I, I, for those that are in the audience, if you have not read through or at least skimmed through this white paper that we're talking about, you really should. It's written in a very, very concise and approachable way. It's, it's, it's substantial, but you can really kind of just go through it, follow the table of contents and really get a sense for what we're talking about. Before PU ask your question, I want to just highlight this. Me, the non-technical person on this show, this was the easiest white paper I've ever read. Not not as a knock, but because it relies, it's, it's a very philosophical conversation you're having. And it relies a lot more on knowledge of just the macro environment and the world rather than understanding the nuances of the technology behind this and what's going on. So non-technical person, highly recommend actually reading this white paper of all white papers. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I too am a non-technical person. I'm actually an anthropologist and historian. I, di I didn't get into that in my intro, but I'm, I'm interested in Bitcoin as a social technology. 
And so I try to write in that accessible way. How did you bury the lead? Oh my God. This conversation <laughs> is going to get like so much more fun now, guys. I interrupted you though. Please ask your question. Yeah. So I'd love it. Can you define for our audience, just to start things off, what a CBDC is? What are the specific things that, that define it and kind of why it is being pushed right now by the government? Yeah. So a CBDC or a central bank digital currency is a digital currency that is a direct liability of a central bank. So today, digital digital fiat currencies are, are actually typically liabilities of commercial banks. They're created by commercial banks in the lending process. Whereas, you know, cash, physical cash, is a direct liability of the central bank. And so for the economists out there, we're talking about M0 money supply, so hard cash. Until now, there has not been a digital version of hard cash. This has preserved a certain sphere of autonomy for individuals to transact in a peer-to-peer -peer manner offline in meat space. You can, you can engage in cash transactions peer-to-peer -peer without surveillance. This is the last area of human economic life that is not directly surveilled by an intermediary institution. Um, at this point, you know, anti-money laundering policies, both domestically and internationally, have become so entrenched that every transaction conducted through the digital banking system is fully surveilled. And in fact, uh, FinCEN, one of those surveillance authorities we were talking about earlier, which is only founded in 1990, by the way, by a unilateral act of the United States Treasury, so not of Congress, and has been known to issue directives that require full AML KYC identity disclosure for buyers, cash buyers of property like real estate. These programs were initially secret and now they've been made public. And so in effect, what's happening is that governments around the world are, they're not making cash illegal yet. What they're doing is they're subjecting cash transactions to the same surveillance that is already characteristic of the digital banking system. And a CBDC is the final end goal of that trajectory, of that aim. So once a CBDC is implemented, you now have uh, digital cash that is issued by central banks and programmable by central banks. And so you can phase out physical cash altogether, which is the ultimate goal. I think you, there's a line here that I just want to read from the white paper. You said, CBDCs grant governments complete surveillance and control over the last remaining sphere of financial transactions that have eluded them, cash transactions. Second, governments are deeply in debt and they need money to pay down that debt. Since raising taxes is politically unpalatable, central banks are turning to their control over monetary policy to recuperate revenue for the state. You talk about right. how CBDCs allow them to do that. And I think that's yeah. such an important point. Like in 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 olden times, in the halcyon days of yore, you know, a a a king or a lord or a duke, or whatever, had to literally send somebody into the homes of their subjects. Right. They'd be like, throw all your coins on the table. I'm taking some yeah. of these. Yeah. And like if, if the U.S. government tried to do that in this modern age, people would yeah. lose their shit. But when they yeah. can inflate away value, which essentially ends up kind of having the same effect, they could just get away with it silently. And I think that's such an important point that people tend to miss. 
Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-work shop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Someone's knocking on my door. I don't know why. Continue, please. No, no, I just, I, I go for it, Kim. Well, I was just going to make a, a stupid joke, so I have nothing positive to contribute here. Anyway. Oh. Excuse me. I, I <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. Go, I'm you. really hoping it's not YouTube or just the powers that be, because there was ge- a genuine concern I had that this might be the episode that we get rugged on as we saw simply bitcoin having a conversation last week about cbdc's only to then have their that episode pulled i'm i candidly wouldn't be surprised if we never heard from natalie again as a result of the what i would be no no no. i would be shocked and very very disheartened mind you we would be concerned but i like ah okay perfect no (laughs) no need no need to sound alarms we're good you just said he would be, you know, not surprised if we just never heard from you again because, like, this was the moment when YouTube sent the, the the theoretical YouTube police to knock on your door and be like, "You need to stop talking about CBDCs." Well, no, no. If they're knocking on your door, it's got to exactly. be Jerome Powell. It's got to be Jerome Powell and the Fed at that point. <laughs> You've so shaken them up that Jerome Powell is personally going to pay you a visit. Uh, okay, let's keep going. Though. Let's keep going. Yeah. So now that we kind of like established the basics of it. I'm going to ask the stupid question, but why from two vantage points? Why do we need a uh, central bank digital currency from the vantage point of the central bank, the government, the state, whatever we want to call it, but also from that other lens of like, why do individuals need this versus ignore Bitcoin for just one question versus just fiat dollars right now? Yeah, I mean, and the answer to that is nobody needs CBDCs. I mean, there there is no problem that CBDCs solve. They, one of the, I suspect the root rationale for governments in developing CBDCs is that they have seen the success of Bitcoin as a, a non-state digital currency, and want to compete with Bitcoin by 
utilizing, you know, blockchain technology or some new type of ledger technology to, to sort of claim the mantle of, of innovation. But, you know, nobody's constituents are asking for this. And that's what's so disingenuous about the e-cash legislation that was proposed, you know, earlier this year is that, you know, these, these members of Congress are saying, oh, you know, this, the CBDC will promote financial inclusion for, you know, the people in my district who are struggling and marginalized. I mean, literally, I can't, I can't think of any person who's struggling economically, who's, who's thinking to themselves, you know, what would really help me a CBDC. The problems that a CBDC could potentially solve for the state, however, are precisely the, the debt problem. So, I mean, states need cash. We have a sovereign debt to GDP ratio on a global scale that is unprecedented in recent economic memory. Governments are, are deeply in debt. They can't raise taxes and they've already taken the inflation route. And, and many of them are actually collapsing as a result of it. Countries that are in a stronger position, like the United States, are not going to collapse due, due to inflation. But what is going to happen is there, there will be these attempts to recuperate revenue using disingenuous means. So through negative interest rates, you know, where you're just like, you're shaving, you know, 2% a week or a month or a year, whatever interval you want off of people's CBDC bank balances, or you're, you know, penalizing people for saving over a certain amount of CBDCs, because, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to cut into the commercial banking system. And so like, you can only have 1500 CBDCs in your bank account at any given time. Like there's going to be all sorts of levers from micro control that we have a hard time even imagining right now. I'm going to force you to do the thing that I know I've been asked on multiple occasions to not do, but I want to play some hypotheticals out because we actually were having this conversation this morning where it was like, what does like what does the United States look like in an environment where there's no no paper cash anymore? It's all CBDC, and like we we almost jokingly said like, oh, you can't see your kids if you haven't staked a thousand dollars of CBDCs of of just like the extreme levels of control that the government could then have. Like what what are some areas that maybe aren't in the front of people's minds where you're like the moment the government has a CBDC, they can now control or stop you from doing this? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it actually doesn't take a lot to imagine because we've, we've witnessed in, in recent history what an ex a government extremely skilled at administrative bookkeeping can achieve when it turns that surveillance power against its citizen. There's there's a movie that I I would highly recommend watching. It's called The Counterfeiters, and it's the story of a group of Jewish inmates in a concentration camp who are allowed to live because of their skill in counterfeiting money. It's you know no secret that you launch a world war like the Third Reich did you're going to need cash to keep that war going. And so 
you know, the people who had used, used their skills, you know, previously in the illicit way to counterfeit money were now seen as, you know, part of the war effort. And they, of course, you know, engaged in their own sabotage, you know, trying to play both sides, like counterfeit enough to survive, but not so much that the Third Reich would win the war. And so it's a really interesting film. But in, in essence, when, when you create a, a truly counterfeit resistance, resistant form of money and identity, and then universalize its use to everything, from giving your kid an allowance to showing up at, at school every day to, you know, reading a book. Like, I mean, there is no area of human life that could not trigger the violence of the state immediately and unquestioningly. And so it's this, it's preserving this space of private that, for example, Edward Snowden has argued is so critical. And I quote him in this paper because he says, he says explicitly, you know, privacy is not about having something to hide. It's about having something to protect. If you have, if, if you don't protect yourself, then you cease to exist as a social person. You're in, in effect, merely a living avatar of some collective personality of a higher order. And that is fundamentally the opposite of any, again, at least founding ethos of political life. Yeah, we're kind of, I'd say suck between a rock and a hard place, but honestly, we're just like below both the rock with the hard place on top of the rock, <laughs> just weighing everything down more yeah. and more on us. Please go ahead. No, sorry. I keep getting excited and being like, ah, I, I am, I'm just continually shocked, you know, and in your, in the white paper, as you start talking about and going to detail about sort of the elimination of physical cash, you, 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 you give some really interesting t statistics. You talk about, as we've just been talking about how governments make these spurious claims about the need for these KYC AML laws and rules. And the claim, the, the story that is told is that this has to be done in order to protect us from terrorists and ne'er-do-wells and illegal transactions. And the idea that, that, you know, if you don't have anything to hide, this has no negative impacts on you. But as you were just saying, that is just, it's patently false. But you also have some specific pieces of information that I think really support that claim. You say that recent studies have suggested that anywhere between 30 and 65% of all e-commerce transactions that are declined globally are in fact legitimate, representing up to 60, excuse me, $640 billion in lost revenue, a figure that grows higher when lost customers and their customer lifetime value are taken into account. I'm just shocked by the disconnect between reality and the narrative that is pushed so heavily and believed by many around this. And it's, uh, it's frankly, it's disheartening, but... Mm -hmm. There it is. That wasn't a question. It was a statement, really. But yeah, yeah, it blows my mind. No, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing. Surveillance isn't for the powerful. It's for the powerless. I mean, it, it is well known that vast majority of criminal activity happens using fiat currencies. Virtually all money laundering passes through five global banks who are named in the paper, <laughs> JP Morgan, HSBC, Standard Chartered Bank, Deutsche Bank, Bank of New York Mellon. I mean, like these are, these are the private sector institutions 
that financial regulators work for, either before or after they work at financial regulators. And so it, it's literally elite capture of the, the institutions of surveillance. And who suffers? I mean, the 99%, like the poor, the middle class, the, the people who you know rely on an income for a living as opposed to compounding wealth. Like these are the people whose like Venmo transactions are now going to be like available to the IRS. It's, it's absurd. Yeah, honestly, I do not need my college Venmo transactions in the hands of the IRS. That would be really bad. Right. Um, I have bad news for you. Shut up. <laughs> they already have it. Shut up. Pete. I want to, you know, there's a, a degree of this that I find truly comical. And that is the way Bitcoin gets attacked as being this like, dark money for money laundering efforts or it's used by criminals and organizations. And like my my biggest sort of counter to that is and will always be right because no one uses any cash to buy drugs or none of the drug dealers that have ever been caught have piles of cash. It's always piles of Bitcoin, right? And then you bring up counterfeiting too, which I'll be completely honest, it's just not not something I frankly think about on a regular basis. I probably should. I feel like we can make a lot of money pee if we like actually put our minds to use here to just counterfeit a bunch of fiat dollars. But I'm that's, sure, that's, that's I understand that's a very there. easy process, right? There's not like a, you know, yeah. just a very, very technologically advanced systems that prevent that. Also, I'm sure it's, <laughs> no, we're not doing that. But my, the point of my question more is like, do you have a sense, Natalie, of like how much of a problem counterfeiting actually is in the grand scheme of our current fiat system? I don't, I, I actually have no idea. What is interesting about Bitcoin in the context of counterfeiting is that because it is a, a cryptocurrency defined by this ironclad protocol, it in effect prevents counterfeiting of itself. And so the cost of verification moves down to zero, which is one of the value propositions of Bitcoin. You know, if somebody shows up, you know, to, to make a payment with bars of gold, one of the first questions you're going to have as the seller is, is that gold? And a, a lot of the gold that's stored in reserves worldwide is in fact gold-plated tungsten It's or some other metal. It's not actually gold. And so the anti-counterfeiting properties of Bitcoin are very powerful, but it's their statelessness the fact that there isn't a centralized entity running the monetary policy and enforcing identity verification for every transaction, that's what prevents that anti-counterfeiting technology from becoming a dystopian tool of control. So we've talked about kind of what CBDCs are. We've talked about why the U.S. government is interested in them. We've talked about briefly about sort of the, the goal of eliminating physical cash. Let's shift to some of the structural problems with CBDCs as you've, you've defined them. Um, mm -hmm. So can you describe sort of the effect that this has in terms of, as you titled it, the contraction of commercial banking? Like what does that mean and how does that affect this, uh, this conversation? Right. So typically most money creation happens at the level of M2, M3 money and is created by commercial banks. And that is in part what has 
sort of maintain the fig leaf of central banks as non-political entities. That they're, you know, they're just there as sort of custodians of the money supply as such, or the hard money supply. The I forgot your question. So say it again. <laughs> totally fine. No, no, I basically was just like sort of talking about the what it means when you say the contraction of commercial banking right. as a problem, as a structural problem. Right. And so the the concern is that if central banks start providing retail accounts directly to individuals, that that eliminates the value proposition of commercial banks. You know, why would I have an account with JP Morgan when I already have an account directly with the Fed? And so that there's been a huge backlash actually from the private banking industry against CBDCs because they see it as even even if it was partially rolled out, it would cut into their revenues substantially, their business model substantially. The the other sort of issue here is, you know, precisely that that, you know, I've invoked these limits on how much CBDC you could own. Well, that's because in order to not cut into the commercial banking sector, there have been proposals floated that the amount of CBDCs that any individual can own need to be capped at a very low amount. So something like $1,500 to $2,500 per person, which is not like a terribly amount, large amount of money for a lot of people, but if you're on, on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum and, and that's most of your, your wealth, which for a lot of Americans, it is, they have zero or negative net worth and less than a thousand dollars in their checking accounts at any one time. And then you propose to implement a 2% negative interest rate on that amount, or even just directly confiscate cash, which the central bank could do if CBDCs were implemented. I mean, at that point, you're literally just like robbing people directly. <laughs> yeah, it's how would that even work? Like if, if there's this cap, so it would be like CBDCs are this separate type of cash that people can have and then the rest gets shunted off into your traditional banking USD account. Right. Yeah. So it the question is, does physical cash still exist? So like, as long as physical cash is around and remains legal tender, then people can still, you know, stock up as much physical cash as they want because it's a physical bearer asset. There are some legal distinctions there, but in effect, that's what it is. Like the cash is on your person. It's effectively your cash. If the cash the physical cash goes away and all there is, is this digital cash, then it becomes much easier to impose these limits and these controls on how much people can, can own. And that's really where the contestation is because the more CBDCs people can own, the less they're likely to rely on the commercial banking system for in effect their checking accounts. And I think honestly that, you know, for, for many people on the left or sort of on the progressive side of the political debate, they want Fed accounts because they want to be able to make direct disbursements from the Fed to individuals in times of need. Universal so like, basic income style. Yeah, universal basic income or stimulus payments. Like 
they don't want to have, you know, to send a check that could then, you know, maybe get lost in the mail or get intercepted. And like, they just want to put that money in people's accounts. And so some that I think is the most well-intentioned motivation behind a CBDC. But I, I also think that, you know, in practice, once something like that is implemented, it's, it's trivial to also use it to confiscate cash. And so now you've like, like created in effect, this like centralized control of everybody's bank balances that just expands or contracts like with monetary policy. <laughs> well, since P's muted, I'll, I'll take over for a hot <laughs> second. And I want to talk about, you know, you and I, Natalie, are not the technologically savvy people, but the government isn't really who I think of when I think of like, oh, they know they're, they're, they're the IT people. Like the number of, <laughs> the number of hacks that we deal with, like, the questions you hear congressional leaders asking during those hearings we had when big tech showed up, it's like, do you, yeah. do you understand how just the internet works? Can we like just dissect that? <laughs> this would in turn put so much more, I think, reliance on the government to be technologically savvy. Yeah. And in reality, what's going to happen is governments are going to outsource building and maintaining these systems to the private sector. They're not going to do it themselves. And so like in Europe, for example, and in the US, companies like Amazon and Accenture have been, you know, pitching CBDC offerings. Amazon has a uh, blockchain as a service, software service that they, you know, are proposing as one option. And so in effect, you know, this would be privatizing the US Mint and Department of Engraving, the bodies that currently issue hard physical cash, giving that power to a corporation that is not accountable to the people and sort of giving the, the central bank the, the ability to deflect blame for abuses or failures of the underlying software to someone else. And so it's the perfect recipe for the abuse of power because very few voters are savvy enough to understand where the buck stops when it comes to software implementations and what is a policy decision, what is a technical decision and how those interplay. So it's, it's challenging from many, many angles. Has anyone, whether it be the Federal Reserve, the Treasury or the government, come out and issued any sort of plan to increase their technological capabilities should this get rolled out? Or is this just sort of a, they haven't really discussed, but we know that they're fucked? Well, I mean, the governments at all levels have the offices and offices of like technology. And so the federal, the federal government is no different. And in fact, the the office, the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy just released their report on technical design options for CBDC, where they, you know, they went pretty in depth and they would say they didn't make recommendations. But I think if you read between the lines, they did make recommendations. So there are a lot of sophisticated technical people who work for the government. It's just that the 
governments are not designed, they're not built to ship and maintain quality software over long periods of time. They're, that just isn't, isn't a core mandate of government. And so the way that technical skill tends to be distributed in government agencies is around the analysis of technology, the procurement of technology and the use of technology. And then also in some cases, the incubation of net new technologies like ARPANET, for example, that don't have any near-term path to profitability, but you know, governments, there are very few like software products that, you know, governments, you know, build ship and then sell and maintain contractually over long periods of time. And so this, this is the incentive or, or not incentive, but the, the different mandate of the public sector versus the private sector. And I think in some cases, governments uh, try to collapse that. They try to say like, well, we can do, you know, Google better than Google. You absolutely cannot. You cannot nationalize Facebook. If you nationalize Facebook, you will destroy Facebook. You don't know how to run a, a even how to begin running a company like Facebook. And so a lot of these discussions are just people failing to make distinctions and assuming that they can do everything without any trade-off decisions, which is a great way to fail. <laughs> no, this this really feels like a like I hate to say it like this, but it feels like the people who are going to be making this decision do not really understand what steps need to be taken in order to make the right decision here. But yeah, that's definitely the case. Q. I'm, I'm just, yeah. I'm a kid who lives in his mother's basement. So like, who am I to say anything about decision makers? <laughs> well, we've seen um, this around inflation. I mean, the, look, the, the controversy around, you know, whether, the Fed is now doing the right thing by raising rates, just like fundamentally misses the point. The question is not even, did they make a mistake when they increased the money supply dramatically over the past few years? Whether they did or not, they did that. And that necessarily implies certain follow-on after effects, i.e. consequences that cannot be elided. They can't, they can't be changed. So raising the price of money a little bit after you've increased the amount of money by like two, three, four fold will, it, it creates complete economic incoherence. And so the problem here is that people are unwilling to tell the truth about what they're up to, about what they're doing. Like if, if, the Fed and Congress had simply said, look, we're going to monetize a bunch of debt because we need to spend, you know, this amount of money to ensure the American economy needs to grow and inflation is going to happen. We are willing to accept that that is an inevitable consequence of this policy choice. Instead, everybody lies all the time. They say, you know, oh, this is like we're temporarily QEing, but then there's going to be a period of quantitative tightening and then we're going to raise rates and it will be as though everything's the same. Like 
no, no trade-off decisions. No. Once you increase the money supply that much, that money's in the economy forever now. Like you, you have to, you have to accept that you've now instigated a cascading order of events that are out of your control. And the problem with these political institutions, namely, you know, the political parties, and then the, the administrative state that is appointed by those parties is that they tend to reward, promote, and advance people whose main skill set is self-preservation over time. And so they just get middle of the bell curve, like weak leaders who never tell the truth, but who always manage to avoid consequences. And what happens? The American people bear the consequences. The American Republic slowly collapses because nobody is taking responsibility for anything. Well said. So we kind of, we started the conversation talking about, you know, CBDC basics, what they are, how they work, what the government is kind of trying to do here. We've now gone through some of the structural problems or most of the structural problems. So far we've covered, you know, the contraction, the risk of the contraction of the commercial banking system. You touched on how this disproportionately affects low-income families, how a CBDC would do that. We've talked about how governments are, frankly, just terrible when it comes to technology. We talked a little bit about the security risks involved, you know, that these AMC, KY, AMC, you know, know your customer laws basically create these honeypots that then get leaked and attacked and hacked. You give, again, you give some, some great just very, very concise stats in, in the paper talking about, you know, in 2020, there's a leak of data from FinCEN and it exposed the identities of suspected financial criminals around the world and of the businesses and specific AML and KYC compliance staffers who reported them. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about sort of centralized blockchains, like what that means, why that's an oxymoron, and, and then mm -hmm. go from there. Right. So the centralization of personal data in, in databases that are maintained by uh, software service providers is, you know, a recipe. I mean, it, it creates incentives for attackers to go after those databases to procure that sensitive information. And so there are, there are like too many hacks of personal data happening every day for the media to effectively report on. Like it, it just, it happens all the time from, you know, very big names, well-respected names. I didn't, you know, even mention the big Equifax hack and they're one of the primary sources of AML KYC data for all kinds of transactions. And so the notion that we're now going to build a giant private centralized database that tracks every financial transaction with full identity data transparency. And this, this database is going to be accessible to the central bank, which also means every financial regulator, which also means everyone downstream from the, those financial regulators who relies on that data. So basically you're creating a global database that, I mean, there are like maybe some fig leaves to access, but that virtually anybody can access at any time. And for obvious reasons, that is terrible, but it seems to be the direction that people feel comfortable going. Yeah, it just feels like, you know, the, the frog being slowly boiled in the pot. Right. 
But the frog thinks it's in a hot tub. And I think genuinely that's what most people think. Like we, I brought this up this morning as well, where we in the Bitcoin space, we hear CBDC and, and there are alarm bells going off in our heads and we are genuinely concerned and we know yeah. why to be. Yeah. I unfortunately don't think the average everyday person understands the risks associated with a CBDC. And in turn, like whether it's they'll be incentivized because they'll say, oh, if you transfer over a thousand fiat cuck bucks over to our new CBDC, we'll double your initial investment. Literally a slogan from DraftKings that is Mm -hmm. a gambling website. That is going to be the slogan that our US government uses. Just, I've said crazier things on this show that have come to fruition. Before we talk about alternatives, Natalie, I want to give you the chance. Is there anything else on just like the flaws in a CBDC that you like to take this opportunity to highlight? I think my main concern is that CBDC proponents, even the best intentioned ones, are not able to anticipate the ways in which this power will inevitably be abused. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. We like to think that, you know, the the US government would never just cut someone off from their checking account because they say politically unpalatable things or because they bought something from a business that is under surveillance or because you know they happen to affiliate with some foreign country that is now under sanctions or something like the, the point is that police action is encroaching more and more on just the terrain of everyday life so rather than being a response to criminal acts that have occurred, we're moving toward a predictive policing model where every little micro behavior can now be required to have permission for before you can act. And so we're, you know, I talked a little bit about earlier about the encroachment of the logic of the airport into everyday life and how that's also like the logic of the prison. We're moving in in a direction where people are born in the prison, they're raised in the prison, they die in the prison. They don't know anything other than the prison. And from their point of view, you know, liberty is whatever the sort of the the order of the prison carves out for you as the sort of bread and circuses area where your frivolities can be expressed. And that's liberty, as opposed to existing autonomously and having the ability to flourish or fail in part due to your own efforts and your own success. And so I think I think well-meaning people, whatever their political ideology, they, they end up moving in this authoritarian direction because they genuinely don't see any alternatives there's no political imagination to imagine what a world with like fully autonomous self-sovereign individuals could look like and so that's really the biggest problem with the cbdc it's not the cbdc as such it is a manifestation 
of a larger failing of political imagination that infects all of our social institutions. So well said, and I don't think we actually mentioned this, but Natalie, you're going to be in front of Congress in two days discussing this, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Thursday. We completely yes. buried the lead. Yeah. So <laughs> this is, by the way, in case you didn't realize it, this is going to be the spokesperson against CBDCs to the powers that be. So honestly, and I'm going to, I'm going to invite people to do this, Natalie, but you should reach out to her via social media and give her your thoughts on this white paper because it is public. Chris, if we can make sure we share it once again in the chat as well. Like this is a very important conversation we are having today that will be repeated on Thursday. Although I'm going to just very, my ego is going to say this more than anything. This is going to be the way funner version for you, Natalie, than Thursday's congressional hearing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you for that. No, of course. Thank you for for doing this. And I now want to switch gears to talk about, you know, the alternatives that you have spent a great deal of time explaining in such like nuanced detail to make sure people who read this understand why their shitty CBDC is such a bad idea compared to all of these other opportunities that are out there. And I just want to start with the easiest one, the layup that is Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, Bitcoin is a cypherpunk project. It grew out of decades of work in computer science by people who had the foresight to recognize that an age of the internet will also necessarily become an age of surveillance unless effective countermeasures are taken and put in place. And so These were the cryptographers and computer scientists who could anticipate that the private sector and the public sector would collude to to eliminate, you know, all vestiges of, of individual liberty over time. Not because they're evil, but because they can. And so what is Bitcoin? It's a system that presumes adversarial markets. It presumes that the counterparty to your transaction is an enemy. And so it builds in a certain type of censorship and rarity, scarcity that ensure that it has integrity and value of time. It's also like the early internet, a network for direct peer-to-peer transacting. And this is ultimately the thing that CBDC proponents find most offensive is they cannot countenance a world where people create and exchange value without some intermediary that is connected to the state. And so we already, I mean, this is the thing, if CBDCs move forward and they will move forward, probably in most countries, I would say it's not yet a foregone conclusion in America, which is why I wrote this paper, but when and where they do move forward, Bitcoin will represent a viable alternative and it absolutely will be used by people to to transact in a peer-to-peer manner. And not just individuals, but also collective entities, including sovereigns themselves. I mean, the, the Russian government may have been in effect cut off from its foreign reserves and the SWIFT banking system, but better believe they're using Bitcoin. And only recently they, they kind of 
publicly admitted it. But this is the reality. Like it's it's non-political money. That doesn't mean it's bad because now, you know, we're we're in this like clown world where like in order for something to be good, it has to be political. The whole point is that Bitcoin is like a, a DMZ for money, a demilitarized zone where enemies can trade with each other and people who don't agree on political visions for their society, their world can still nevertheless transact value. And so this is also why I'm optimistic broadly about Bitcoin as, as a project, because as long as, you know, it, it exists, it continues, you know, new blocks continue to be mined, it will be used. No government can ban it. And I think a lot of people who are proponents of CBDCs don't actually like the idea very much. They're just kind of resigned to it. They're, they're like, well, you know, what, what, what can we really do? I mean, we can't, we can't vote on this issue. A bunch of like elected and unelected politicians are going to just make this happen. Well, whether or not that's true, what you can do is build open source software that creates alternatives. And then you can use your power of voice to influence the political system and your power of exit to also influence the political and social system if and when your voice fails. I mean, not if Christine Lagarde gets her way, right? That quote where, you know, where she's like, we must, we must lock the doors, bar the gates. We cannot allow an exit to exist. And then her eyes flash green and she starts like a little bit. <laughs> so weird. Okay. The first part of what I just said was true. The second part was not. Yeah. No, it's like everyone's like a goofy Bond villain. Like, <laughs> oh, you say that? I, I, <laughs> it's so true. I harp on this so often. It's like if you went to like a, like a Pixar character artist and you were like, I need you to draw me the quintessential central bank crew that are going to like destroy the entire world. <laughs> you would immediately have like the you know, the Augustus Carson's like the morbidly obese, like right. crazy looking dude. You'd have the super tall, thin, like arachnoid person. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's wild. Yeah. I um, want to just quickly draw attention to this over on Rumble, CBINS1, just letting you know, a CBDC mm -hmm. is actually that crypto that you're talking, the government's going to like create and pass along to people. We're literally having a conversation about that, but feel free to uh, listen and follow along. Um, I do yeah. want to continue to go like down this rabbit hole because like we spent a lot of time on this show talking about like there's no reason for the government and the powers that be in the central bankers to turn around and say, you know what? We did fuck up the money for generations now. And the best solution is we're just going to give up this power willy-nilly and just everyone go use Bitcoin. As much as I would love to live in that reality and that timeline, something tells me that's just not the reality I live in. Um, I just, I'm curious where you, in any initial conversations you've had with government officials or just what your expectations are of the pushback against Bitcoin when that does come up. Yeah. You know, I've, I've done quite a bit of policy work on this issue over the years. So again, I didn't get to this in my bio, but I helped found the Texas Blockchain Council, which is a trade association in Texas. And I ensured that it had a strong Bitcoin focus, even though the word blockchain was in the name. And so I've, I've actually 
worked closely with politicians on both sides of the aisle to pass legislation. And in our in the 2021 Texas legislative session, we got two bills passed. One of them was to create a state work group on blockchain matters, which I was appointed to by the Texas Speaker of the House. And we're actually finalizing our report with policy recommendations that is due to be published by the end of October, early November. So that'll be another thing that, you know, we could potentially talk about. But one of the recommendations that I pushed for vociferously in that context was to recommend to the Texas congressional delegation to reject the implementation of a retail CBDC. And in the case of Texas, we were sort of fortunate in that Senator Ted Cruz actually had already introduced a bill in the Senate to bar the Federal Reserve from, from issuing retail CBDCs and maintaining direct bank accounts for individuals. And that bill was a direct response or a, a mirror almost exactly of a House bill that was introduced by Minnesota Congressman Tom Emmer just a few months before. So we, we actually do have bills in front of Congress that would prevent a retail CBDC. The problem is that they don't necessarily pre prevent a wholesale CBDC. And so this is the thing, people like to split hair and, you know, a wholesale CBDC is kind of like an indirect CBDC where the Fed would issue the currency to commercial banks who, you know, would in turn be intermediaries for it to, to end users. If a CBDC is implemented in the United States, that's likely how it would go. It would be intermediated through the commercial banking system. And so the I think there are people in Congress and in state legislatures who are very against this. I know of a number of legislators in Texas who are just like, absolutely not, not in this country. But there is a lot of inertia behind the accrual of power to government institutions. That's just the reality. And it's much harder to play defense than it is to play offense. And so from my point of view, the, the political impasse we're at requires a really radical approach to government as such, meaning truly dramatically limiting the role of government in in human affairs in american affairs and that is a much harder battle to fight because even the you know the people within the government apparatus who favor that are nevertheless within that apparatus and so there there are incentives to perpetuate it to always ask for more money to always you know expand the scope of you know one's job and one's responsibilities and so it's it's a it's a moment for sure. What are some of these other alternatives that you want to at least have Congress consider or just have a conversation over? I know you mentioned stable coins. Are there any others that you want to highlight? You know, I think, you know, in the paper, I, I basically say that between digital dollars, physical cash, Bitcoin and stable coins, 
all monetary use cases are covered. Like there's literally no thing that you cannot financially do with those tools. And so CBDC is simply unnecessary. Stable coins, however, and I write about this in the paper as well, in order to be valuable and enduring stores of value, they do need to be collateralized one-to-one -one with either the fiat currencies they represent or hard assets. And the problems that we've encountered in the world of stable coins have like have largely been due to this under collateralization, you know, kind of crazy rehypothecation and and then, you know, algorithmic collapse. And so like that I think is fine. Like I, I think stable coins are just they're a new form factor for M2 and M1 in some cases money supply. And so there's nothing about stable coins that I see as in need of new regulation or new policy. They're just a new way of delivering money. Bitcoin is qualitatively different because it is a non-state currency. Its its value exists as a result of the network effects of the the people who store and transact with it. And so it, it also, I would suggest, doesn't need any any new policy other than governments need to like basically stay out of its way and accumulate as much of it as they can. And so these these are kind of the the policy directions that I've been pushing for in in my work at the work group and in this white paper. You do make mention of Terra, and I'd, I'd love, because we spend probably way too much time talking about the debacle that is Luna, how, not, let me rephrase, what do you anticipate, if any knowledge or questions in regards to the whole Terra Luna debacle, when you start to discuss or go down this sort of stable coin path, and do you think, you know, that very fresh and recent example of a stable coin's failure and collapse unfortunately makes it a little bit more difficult in the near term to justify a stable coin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think no doubt in the minds of, I would say, most regulators and political actors who are aware of cryptocurrency at all, they actually don't really distinguish between stable coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, like Solana, like all these different projects. I mean, they're, they're basically just all crypto to them and most of them don't care. Uh, so kind of how we were go going back to that discussion about power, like for the most part, power is uninterested and you know, extremely limited in its scope of what it can care about at any given time, which is also why there's an argument for limiting it and limiting its jurisdiction because it's uninformed on the vast majority of things. And uh, its intervention is often net-net detrimental to whatever sphere it intervenes in. And so, you know, when the Terra Luna debacle happened, of course, there was immediately a response from the, the Treasury and some people in Congress that, you know, crypto needs to be regulated. And the, the reality is that, you know, the, the fight around stable coins is really just around, it's not actually about stable coins. It's about what counts as a bank. So the traditional banks are saying, we love stable coins, 
We just want the law to stipulate that we're the only authorized issuers of them, of stable coins. Whereas the neobanks, like the exchanges, Circle, Tether, like some of them, the ones that have a vested interest in legitimacy within the US are trying to become banks. So they're trying to get charters and they're not being approved for charters. And so that's really the the question. And, and I think that's the interesting political question is what is a bank? What What is the trust that society puts in a bank? What is the bar that a bank needs to be held to? And then how can we make the process of becoming a bank less political and more objective, just in line with those objective processes around what's your value proposition, what's your business model, and how do you protect the trust that's inherent in that value proposition? And so that's the question. Sorry, I keep doing that. I guess you're just so, you're so taken back by the, the, quality of the content you're just reeling. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, to be honest, and like I'm looking up every third word Natalie is saying just because I don't read or nor am I nearly as eloquent <laughs> as Natalie is. So there is that going on behind the scenes here. I do want to just give you the opportunity because we are coming towards the end of both our time together as well as this white paper. I feel like P and I have tried our best to mine as much out of this, but are there any portions or segments that we didn't yet ask you that you'd love to highlight and discuss? You know, I, I started the white paper by comparing and contrasting the American and Chinese models of political economy. Not because there's any ethnic essence to, you know, people's political preferences, but because nation states or political entities institutionalize values. So they, they build values into the built environment as software is part of the built environment. So the reason that it's important for America to maintain its founding political project is because the default option the easy path is authoritarian control. That is the direction in which all powerful states trend without exception. And, you know, China is actually a very successful example of this. And so it used to be when I was growing up in the 90s that, you know, people thought America was great. America's the best because we're the richest country in the world. And people come here to make a lot of money and they're so prosperous. Well, I mean, the share of global GDP that resides in the United States, both at the high and low ends, has been steadily decreasing. We're, you know, we, we may not be the richest country in the world for much longer on, on an aggregate basis. And, and so people who don't actually think in terms of principles or values will say, well, look at these authoritarian systems. They're now richer. They're now more powerful empires. Like clearly we should emulate them. And this is, this is 
so much of the rhetoric behind CBDCs. I mean, Representative Jim Himes, like over and over again, well, China's doing this and we can't be left behind. We have to innovate. Do we? Innovation for whom? What principles are you functioning from other than the mere augmentation of your own power? What is it that you're solving for as, as a collective project? And that's the question that, you know, a lot of politicians, even, even a lot of Americans can't answer anymore. We don't know. We thought it was about liberty and justice. Then we thought it was about everybody getting rich. And then we thought it was about, I don't know, safety or something like war on terror. I don't know. Like, what are we about as a country? Why should people move here? Why should people put their money in this project, the American project? That's the question that needs to be answered. And that is a, a spiritual question, a philosophical question. That's the debate that needs to be had. Very Natalie, well I cannot reiterate how, yeah, what Peter said. It was very, very well put. I did go ahead and just, because this has become one of my favorite things to do instead of a lot of other things. So Jim Himes' highest donors include JP Morgan Chase, Ernst & Young, KPMG, yeah. PwC. Seems like a lot of businesses that have their hands tied up in financials, money markets, and could probably stand to benefit from greater yeah. control over just money in general. I wonder where his incentives are aligned. And it's interesting to juxtapose that to the community banks and community credit unions that have written in support of Representative Emmer's legislation against CBDCs. And so there is a definite and palpable divide between the sort of elite tier of institutions, you know, the, the, the like the Goldman's and the hedge funds and the Ivy League institutions and the positions of of power in regulatory agencies that are revolving doors and that people just cycle in and out of. And then like the rest of the economy that actually generates the value that this class is increasingly parasitic on. And I will say that without reservation, like this is actually an anthropological statement. Empires collapse because parasitism at the top becomes unsustainable by the economic production of the bottom of the pyramid. Like they're literally just too many elites and they become more and more rapacious and consolidate more and more resources to themselves uh, to the point where the pyramid collapses because there's literally not enough production to support them. And so when we talk about support for something like a CBDC, often it's a coalition of people who are counting on a kind of political Cantillon effect and they're sort of, you know, perhaps naive, perhaps also somehow incentivized enablers who believe that some somehow power simply can curtail itself through the force of, you know, character or, or goodwill or something. And so I think Emmer's legislation, Senator Cruz's legislation, and the support that they're getting from, you know, the commercial banking sector that serves ordinary Americans is an important indicator of the political direction we need to take. And can you just go into what exactly is happening in two days and how people as individuals can support what you're trying to achieve here? 
Yeah, so in, in two days, I'm, I'm going to do a congressional briefing on this white paper, which just means I'm going to have a PowerPoint presentation. It'll be recorded, like Representative Emmer has recorded a statement as well that will be played. And so anybody who wants to can join in. This will be virtual. Keep an eye on the Bitcoin Policy Institute's Twitter. They're going to be tweeting out a link to this. I don't know exactly when, but that's how you're able to watch. Zell, don't fuck this up. Uh, <laughs> of course, Natalie's uh, Instagram, or sorry, Twitter handle is down there on the screen for those listening on the podcast. And Smolensky, or at and Smolensky, spelled exactly like it sounds. Natalie, where can our audience stay up to date with everything else you got cooking? And of course, I'm going to do the, the thing that P hates when I do, but you're definitely coming back on the show either to give us an update on how the hearing went or just to talk yeah. about just the anthropological impacts that Bitcoin will have on our society in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter. I also have a website that's linked from there. I need to update that, but most of the new stuff will be, will be posted to the Twitter feed. Awesome. Natalie, thank you so much for your time and all the work that you're putting into this and good luck on Thursday. We will definitely be rooting for you and keeping a close eye on how all things shake out. Thank you guys so much. This was great. Thank you. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.